Hello, everyone. And again, it is good to see you here on this wintry morning. And I'm going to invite you at this time, if you have a Bible or device, to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Have you ever, while you watch the news, and I'm not sure how you, what medium you use to get the, the news, but ha have you ever, while you're watching the news, felt just a real deep sadness? Uh, even maybe uh, to the point where you just want to weep or you do weep? Uh, every day when we look uh, on the news, uh, we see... Uh, just so much evil. And by the way, if you're a guest, welcome to our service today. You picked a good Sunday. Uh, but we just see uh, so much pain and suffering and so much evil and how people are so mistreated. We know there's a God who made us in his image. And because of that, we are all created equal, male and female. And because of that, Every single person is to be treated with dignity and with fairness, but we so often we don't see that. And I know for myself, when I uh, watch the news and I see that, uh, I often think, you know, we're not even seeing the half of it. We're just scratching the surface. Here in Elmira, around the world, there is so much op oppression and injustice. We're just seeing a little of that in our broken world. But I also have to remind, my, remind myself as well that we live in a beautiful world as well. God, we still see the remnants of God's beauty, his world and his people. And there are, uh, in the midst of 8, million, 8 billion people, there are, uh, there are things that are not right and that are evil, but there's, so, there's a lot of love and there's a lot of care and there's a lot of goodness in our world as well. And we often don't see that on the news. So we're, we're constantly processing what we see. And I know for myself, on the one hand, um, I don't want to be overwhelmed by what I see where I'm just like in despair. But on the other hand, I just, I don't want to shield my eyes, like turn away every time there's an image because I want to, as a follower of Jesus, have a soft heart. And I want to, Lord, what can we do? And I, I know for me, in particular, with the war in Ukraine, uh, but also any time in Afghanistan and, and, and just the injustice there, I, I, every time I'm always praying, God, would you end the war? God, would you help the women there? So um, we just see so much of that in our world today. And it is not new. If we go back uh, to the history of mankind, I mean, God created us all good, but because of the fall, sin entered, and from that point on, I mean, the first family, the oldest son killed the youngest son, so we see it right through human history, and if we go back 3,000 years to the time of Solomon, we see it as well. So we're in this series looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is sharing a 12-chapter sermon with us, and uh, the key to understanding this book, uh, uh, the key phrase is under the sun. He is, as he goes through this book, he is looking at what he observes uh, in the here and now. He's observing from a secular worldview. We hear that every single day. And he's saying, if, that, if this is all there is, then this. And it's a very depressing book if you don't understand the context. Because from time to time, he'll lift up the curtain and say, oh, there's more than just what you see. So as we continue in this series today in week number four, he's going to look at all of the evil, all of the oppression, all of the injustice. And then he's going to lift up the curtain as well. And uh, as we begin, is there a hope to what we see? Is there an answer to what we see? And he's going to speak to us about that. And, uh, but before we do, I do want to mention, when you read through this 12-chapter sermon... 
uh, in Ecclesiastes, and we're covering part of chapter 3 through chapter 8 today. Again, you have to read it in context. Whenever you open your Bible, there's a near context and a far context, and the near context is under the sun. So when you read in Ecclesiastes uh, where Solomon says, hey, don't be over-righteous, you're like, wait a second, the Bible calls us to be righteous. And you read, don't be overwise, you would say, wait a second, the Bible calls us to be wise. And frustration is better than laughter. We say, well, no, the Bible teaches something else. Or money is the answer to everything. We would say, no, the Bible doesn't say that. So he says all of that in the context under the sun. If this is all there is, then go for money. It will help you in a lot of problems. Evade taxes, go live in the Caribbean. You know, like it's, it's under the sun context. So that's what we're seeing today. He's going to look at what he sees under the sun in this messed up world, and then he's going to lift up the curtain for us. So Ecclesiastes 3, we're going to begin in verse 16, and again, we're going to look at a number of passages today. We read, and I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. So out in the world, in the marketplace, he sees injustice. But he says, in the place you would expect to find justice, and he's referring to the courts of law. In those courts, you would expect justice to be found. Now, what is uh, injustice? What's a wicked person? Someone uh, who we would say is wicked from Scripture. A wicked person is someone who mistreats another human being that's made in the image of God and is therefore in the wrong before a holy God. So he says, all of these people that are wronging people and harming people, they come to the courts of law and there's no justice. They're getting away with it. There's corrupt courts. Now that's not new. 3,000, or that's, um, that still exists today. Today, in many uh, uh, countries in the world, their courts are corrupt. Now, here in North America, there's been a lot of re reforms, and, and uh, we're moving in that direction. But, but there's, even in North America, there are courts that have been corrupt. Uh, a book I re referenced before uh, called Just Mercy, it's written by a Christian, Brian Stevenson, but he addresses a lot of, of corruption that was in, in the courts here in North America. And uh, so that's what Solomon sees. He sees injustice. Secondly, he sees oppression. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. So he sees oppression. Oppression is the pressing down of one group, subordinating one group of people, and raising up the other group, the privileged group. So it's pressing down and structuring laws and things that press down on certain people. And he sees this under the sun. And he sees the oppressed, or the oppressors, those with the power, and they're pushing down on those being oppressed. And he sees their tears. But notice something else he sees there. What else does he see? He sees that the oppressed have no comforter. They have no helper. They have no rescuer. They have no hope. And then he makes this statement. 
And I declare, verse 2, and I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Again, if I'm reading this without the context, oh, the Bible teaches it's better not to have been born. No, it's not teaching that. But under the sun, where oppression is taking place, he's saying this oppression is so bad that it's better if you're dead because you don't have to experience. And even better than that is if you were never born in the first place. And notice the phrase, better than. He uses that phrase. In Ecclesiastes, you find the phrase, under the sun, chasing after the wind, and then better or better than. And uh, it's, he sees this evil under the sun. And then he goes on to talk about two different kinds of evil. Uh, the first is he talks about envy. So uh, verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, envy always hurts us. Envy is not good for you. It's not God's will for you. Now, he's not talking about Instagram envy. He didn't have Instagram back then. But an Instagram envy, right, um, you can look. Um, most of you that didn't catch that. I'm not on Instagram, but those of you that are, you can look and see all the wonderful posts of different people. Now, there's nothing wrong with you posting uh, something you've done or somewhere you've been, as long as it's with the right intent. But you look at all of those posts and you're like, compared to me, my life is what? Drab, pathetic, I'm a loser, right? And what happens? Well. I need some of that, and I need to outdo somebody else because I don't want to be at the bottom. He doesn't see Instagram envy and, and how it hurts us. He, he sees it and how it's hurting other people. He looks in the marketplace, and there's this person that's trying to outdo that person, this person that's, that, that wants more and to be better than that person. Now, there's a place for healthy competition in the marketplace. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people just trying to outdo one another. So that's one type of evil he sees. Another type is greed. Uh, if you flip to chapter 5 and starting in verse 8, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. So he's not saying it's okay for injustice and oppression in a land, but what he's saying is don't be surprised. We're living in a fallen world. It's going to be there somewhere in many places. And then he talks about what he sees. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. He's talking here about a corrupt bureaucracy, how there's an official another official above that official, another one above uh, that official, and then at the top is the king. They're profiting from uh, the land, from the yields of the land. They're, and it's in the context of greed. They, they want more. They never have enough. And we see this. What he's talking about? He's talking about privileged insiders who control bureaucracies and they structure um, the economy in a way that benefits them right? They don't care about af affordable housing. They don't care about affordable health care. It's all about them and getting more. 
And notice, it's not simply on an individual level that he sees it, it's on a systemic level. Same today. We still see countries in our world on a systemic level. They're corrupt. There's this corrupt bureaucracy. Uh, here, we see, uh, even in Canada, we still see envy and greed where uh, in the marketplace there's cheating, there's fraud, there's unjust gain, there is unfair consumer practices, there's bait and switch marketing, there's bogus fees. So he sees that. I want to pause just for a moment and ask uh, you, what drives you? Does envy and greed and rivalry and status and selfishness drive you? Or does Christ drive you? I work hard at my business or as an employee, I work hard to make money so that my needs are met, but so I can be a blessing to people. I'm not out to outdo people. Are you free from envy and greed? So Solomon, he looks around and he sees all of this misery. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and talk about the problem of evil. Because when we too look at the news, or we look around us, and we see injustice and evil and oppression, it causes us not only to question life, like what's going on in life, what, what's up with this messed up world, but it can cause us to question God as well. And the first thing it causes us to question is the existence of God. And maybe you're here today, and you look at all the garbage in our world, and you say, how is that compatible with an all-powerful God? How do I reconcile evil and injustice and all of that stuff with a God supposedly who's all-powerful and could do something about it? And what happens for some people is they remove God from the equation. Well, that just proves there is no God. God doesn't exist because of the evil. But there's a problem to that argument. I want to pause just for a moment and talk about the logical argument for God in the midst of evil. And here's just a, a brief summary of it. You can go into a deep dive, uh, but this is a brief summary. That if evil exists, okay, we all see evil, we know the reality of it. If evil exists, one must um, assume that good exists in order to know the difference. And if good is, exists, one must assume a moral law exists by which one can differentiate between evil, good and evil. And if a moral law exists, one must assume there is a supreme moral law giver to the moral law and thus leads one to the existence of God. In other words, you take God out of the equation, you have no evil because it's just what you think and somebody else thinks. There's no outside reference, objective reference to say that's good and that's evil. And that's why uh, you've, I've mentioned it before, but Yuval Noah Harari, he's a, a best-selling, New York Times best-selling author. He's written a couple books on, on how he sees human history. He's an atheist, and he accurately observes that we as human beings, uh, in our makeup, there is no such thing as human rights. There's no such thing as men being equal. None of that. You can't get that from, um, from our makeup. And he accurately observes as an atheist that this idea of equality comes from Christianity, from the God of the Bible. Who's to say genocide is wrong? We hear people saying, oh, we don't need God, genocide's wrong. Well, actually, 
No, you, ha- you cannot make that statement logically that it's wrong. But if a, a God, a moral lawgiver, says it's wrong, then it, then it is wrong. Uh, who says that it's wrong for the, for the uh, strong and rich to oppress the poor? You can say, oh, we can make that argument without God. No, you can't. Logically, you've got to have a moral lawgiver. So we, we cheer and we're grateful for non-Christians that stand up for universal human rights. We, we're grateful for, for non-Christians who stand up and say racism, racism is wrong. We're grateful for non-Christians who say men and women are equal. But the secular narrative has no basis for that. It's all to do with the God of the Bible. So you can't say, because we have evil, there is no God. Without a God, there is no idea, uh, no concept of good and evil. So that's the first question. Second question is, we ask, is the good, we question the goodness of God. If a God is all-powerful and he's all-good, why does he stand by when there is so much evil, injustice, and oppression? And that's a real question. It's a hard question. It's the question that is being asked right now over in Ukraine. The head of the Ukrainian Bible Society, he, he lives in ravished uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, he talks and he shares about how all around him are traumatized people. And he talks about how people are searching for answers. They're asking for Bibles. Um, but they're asking the main question is, why would God allow this war? Why would he allow this evil? It's a, it's a real question. It's a question that, that we would ask too. Now, on one level, there's a, a, an answer, but it, to me, as a finite being, it's, it's, it's not a real satisfactory answer. Uh, I know there's a day we'll, we'll know in full, uh, know fully, but, but until that day, uh, this answer is not a satisfactory answer for me, but it's, it's at least some answer. From Scripture, we know that God is a God of love, and because he's a God of love, when he created us in his image, he had to give us uh, the option, the choice, to choose him or not choose him. To choose good or to choose evil. That's what free will is about. If he hadn't have given us that option, then we would just be robots. It'd be forced love, which is a contradiction in terms. So on one level, we know, you know, God had to give us the option for it. He's not the cause of it, but he, he allowed that option. So I, and I know that in the end, all things work for his glory. Uh, that's an answer. But until eternity, I, I, I still struggle with why do we see so much evil in our world with a good God. To better understand the story um, as finite human beings from Scripture, we have to understand there's an infinite God, there's so many things going on, and, and how it works together. Uh, we can make guesses, but we don't really know. I just want to quickly talk about uh, the story in Scripture as we talk about evil and where it came from. Um, we know in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he created everything good. So he creates this and he says, it's good. Creates this, it's good. Creates this, it's good. Creates uh, 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 mankind, and he says, it's very good, because you and me are the pinnacle of his creation. He's a God of uh, love. He's a God of life. So here is the first man and the first woman, and they're in the garden, and everything is good. But we also know in the story of Scripture 
that at some undisclosed time prior to the creation of the world, God created angelic beings, spirit beings. Uh, we know this from Job 38 because the, the angelic beings rejoiced at creation. So when creation came into being, they were already created. And we know from Ezekiel 28 that one of those created beings, spiritual beings, uh, was Lucifer. Uh, we know him as Satan. And we know from Ezekiel 28 that Lucifer not only wanted to be like God, he wanted to be God. So he led a coup, a rebellion of these, some of these angelic beings, and uh, they opposed God. And we know from Revelation 12 that they could not overpower God, but rather God had to expel them to earth. And that's why Jesus in Luke chapter 10 says, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. Jesus, the preexistent son of God, he's God, he saw when that took place. And then so if we back up to the story in Genesis, here are the man and the woman who have been created good, but there is this evil one who comes and influences them to do evil. He causes them to question God's goodness. Did God really say you couldn't do this? I mean, they could do everything, but this one thing, did God really say that? He's holding out on you. He's not a good God. And they choose with their free will to do evil, to do wrong. And so we see right from that day on sin and evil and injustice, oppression in our world. Now Solomon, uh, as he's uh, sharing this sermon with us, he doesn't talk about the dynamics of the spirit world. He's not going into that. But he sees the results of it. And he grieves. And so we ask the question, in the midst of the news and all we see around us, is there an answer to what we see? Is there hope? Uh, if you forward then to Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 10. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time. So Solomon sees a wicked person, someone made in the image of God, mistreating another person made in the image of God, pushing them down, they're in the wrong. He sees that person doing it, and notice he's lamenting. First he's lamenting that that person is buried. In that culture, in that day, to, to have a proper burial was to be honored. Not everybody had a burial, a proper burial. And he's like, this person who's done all of these bad things, he's being honored. And then he says, and he's receiving praise. And he gets away with his sentence, and it's causing other people to do evil. And then he says, and that person even lived a long time. Very similar to Psalm 73. Look around. Why are the Wicked people getting what righteous people deserve. What, what's going on? And so he's lamenting, but now he's going to lift up the curtain for us. Although a wicked person who commits 100 crimes may live a long life, I know that it will go better, notice that, go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. In the midst of all we see, is there an answer? Yes. What's the answer? It's God. 
What's the hope? It's God. Solomon says, don't conclude that even though you see wicked people prospering and even maybe living long and getting away with it, don't conclude that it's going to go well with them. He says it's only a matter of time before they will be judged. It will not go well with them. He's saying the wicked will not prosper in the days ahead after death. They're not going to prosper. And if you look at the story of Scripture that God has given to us, from Genesis to Revelation, we are told that we have a God who is going to judge, and that is a good thing. A God of love judges. When someone is hurt, God doesn't look the other way and say, tough luck. He judges that sin. The prophets talked about God's judgment. Jesus talked about God's judgment. In fact, he said, I'm going to be the one that's been entrusted with the judgment. That every single person in the world is going to stand before Jesus. And they're going to see him as savior or as judge. Paul talked about judgment. John talked about judgment. James talked about judgment. Peter talked about judgment. A just God has to judge sin. Now, today, as we're hearing this, we could say, well, let's point the finger at all of those people over there and doing all of those wicked things. But before we point the finger at them, what about you and me? What is our sentence when it comes to what we've done? All of us, I think, if we're honest, would say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've done something wrong. Things are not right with me. That's what Scripture teaches. And because of that, the just sentence for you and for me is eternal death, is eternal separation from a God who is holy. But there's good news, and that's the story of Jesus. We saw, I was trying to think earlier, I think it was like this year, earlier this year, we saw on the news, on a screen, a black man being pinned by a white man to the ground. And we saw the force that was applied that eventually snuffed out the black man's life. And I think it was nine minutes where we saw injustice. Now, his family says that this, this man was a Christian. Praise God. I hope he had that hope as he was dying there. But the reality is there are other people still in our world that are experiencing that same kind of injustice. But then there's another reality. There's someone else who was gasping for air. There's someone else who died by asphyxiation. 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross after being beaten and bloodied, he hung on a cross for hours. And here's what's mind-boggling. He had committed no wrong. The just was dying in the place of you and me, the unjust. The justice of God and the love of God meeting on the cross. Somebody has to judge your sin. God loves you so much, he did it. And if you have never given your life to Jesus, you've never asked him to be your savior, today, please understand, you may not be an oppressor, but you still deserve to be punished before, by a holy God for your sin. So today, call out to Jesus to save you. Believe in him. But here's what is amazing, is that Jesus died on the cross not only for you and for me, and not only for people being oppressed. And around our world, there are people being oppressed. They're calling out to God for salvation of Jesus. 
not only for them, but also for oppressors. If you look at history, there have been oppressors who truly repented of what they have done and were forgiven by Jesus. When we look at our world, our messed up world, we're sad and it's just awful. But when we look at Jesus, there's hope. Hope is a person. And that's the message we carry to the world. Um, I want to pause just for a moment and um, reference a, a book. It's called Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nairi. And I want to just reference it because here were people that were being oppressed under the sun, but they found hope in the one who is above the sun. They found hope in Jesus. Uh, Daniel Nairi uh, grew up in, he's still alive today, he grew up in Iran and he invites us in this book into his struggles. He talks about having to leave his homeland of Iran, in which he loved, and his family loved, leaving that homeland and being displaced. And eventually they ended up in the United States, but in a number of countries, and being displaced. And he talks about all of the struggles in between. He talks about how in Iran uh, he belonged to a wealthy family. His mother was a doctor. They had the land. The grandparents had land. He talks about how they loved being with their family, extended family. But he also talks about how one day his mother heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and asked Jesus to be her savior. And his mother was open about that. And it was just a matter of time. In Iran, it's a capital crime. Uh, to be converted to Christianity. It was just a matter of time before she, uh, uh, the government issued a fatwa against her and threatened to kill her children. So she and her son, Daniel, and his sister, they had to flee Iran, never to go back again. And so he talks about having to flee, and he talks about uh, being in refugee camps, he talks about bullying, he talks about discrimination, humiliation, loneliness. He talks about all of that sadness. But he also talks about the hope that they had in Christ. And he, he writes this in his book. First, he talks about his mother's faith. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions, you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe he was the one who died for you. And then he talks about what they had to give up. It's true and he's talking about faith in Jesus. It's true and more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of, I think it's Jalfa, and even maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the tra trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. That one day Jesus will come and set all things right. And until that day, even the oppressed can find hope in him. So the answer to all we see is God, more specifically, who's come to us in Jesus. He's the only answer. But here's the thing. We as his people are called to step into those places where people fall and they have no one to help them up. Now Solomon doesn't talk about that in his sermon, but he talks about that idea 
of where someone who falls and has no one to help him up, it's so bad. We're called to help. I'd like to read a passage um, that he shares in, in, back to cha- in chapter 4 that you may have read at weddings or heard at weddings, um, but, and it, it can apply to a husband and wife, but it it's applies to all of us. It's to, to, to community. And he says this, beginning in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. They can accomplish more. But he goes on, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Out in the, in the ancient Near East, it got cold at night. And, and uh, groups, they would huddle together for body warmth because two is better than one. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Two is better than one, and a third, and some believe it would be a reference to the divine, to God, that that's even better. The point he's making is that there is strength in numbers. It's not good to be alone. And Jesus calls us to help people that are alone, that have no comfort. That's what Matthew 25 is about. When you uh, when you saw, saw me hungry, you gave me something to eat. When you saw me thirsty, you gave me water to drink. And you, you went and you visited me. That's what we're called to do. But before we close, I want to ask this question. Because we hear it in culture today and society today. Is Christianity good? Right? We don't need God to be good. Well, actually we do. But is Christianity good? It's a white man's religion. It oppresses people. Um, If you look around our world today, you will find that it's not true. You will find that Christians serve more, volunteer more, give more than non-Christians. Why? Because when you receive Jesus, the one who rescues you into your life, then you have a heart for the person that is alone, that you want to help rescue them or do something for them. Around the world today, you will find Christians in humanitarian causes, often spearheaded by Christians. You will find Christians in prisons, in refugee camps, Christians advocating for affordable housing, affordable health care. Christians lead the way. That's That's just fact. But what about Christians, as we look in the past, or supposed Christians, who have been complicit in evil, injustice, and oppression. It is true that some people who say they're Christians have done bad things. And God, is, God knows their heart because there's a lot of people who say they're Christians then they aren't Christians. God knows their heart and they failed. But just because a white person failed doesn't say mean Christianity is wrong because Christianity is not a white man's religion. If you want to know the face of a Christian today, it's a woman of color, not a white male. Now, I'm not speaking against white males because we know from Scripture cancel culture is wrong, but critical race theory, there are so many problems with that theory. And so it's okay to be white and a male. But what I'm saying is you can't throw out Christianity because of white people that have done something over here. It's not a white man's religion. And so... Is Christianity good? We look around the world and we say, yes, it is. Now, let's talk about Woodside for a moment. At Woodside, 
we're called to fear God, to point others to God, they need Jesus, but we're also called to help those that fall down. So in our church family, you and I were called to help one another, to care about one another. In your life group, you're called to help. In our congregational care support ministry, we have people that want to help, and if, if you need help, please reach out. We also have, we heard this morning, local missions. We also have global missions where people are helping overseas. Uh, we also have a, a refugee ministry. We've just started a refugee team. We've had some people in the past with a heart for refugees, but now we have a team uh, in the past, we've helped three families. We're working, they're working with a number of individuals now, trying to, to, to help those uh, that are in need. We have a couple in our church uh, that has reached out uh, to refugees. And so I say this, that, all of that to say this, in the future, that's one of the ways in our calling that we would help those who need help. Because that could be any of us. But it just happens to be them. And so I'm asking you to consider in the days ahead, can I be involved? Maybe as part of the refugee uh, leadership team, but maybe too when it comes to, to um, helping with transportation or helping with clothing or helping with childcare. We, as we move forward, this is something we want to do better here at Woodside and, and increase. So I just wanted to put that out there to you. And then finally at Woodside, we have individuals in our church who have a passion for justice. And if that's you, there are a number of parachurch ministries that we can point you to where maybe you can get involved um, in, in a, a deeper way. Because God has called his people to do something. And at Woodside, this is what he's called us to do. 